Good afternoon. This is Let's Talk Animals, from aardvarks to zebras. Dr. John Hunt, your host. This is our once a month, four o'clock in the afternoon, hour-long interview show, covering any and all aspects of animals. I always like to plug my 7.30 in the morning on Sunday, uh, Pet Sounds, it's a three to five minute short, talking about, talking about all sorts of pet-related topics. And today, uh, I have a uh, very uh, unusual, not unusual, very, uh, oh, he's, he's a well-qualified guest in the field that we're going to talk about. And his name is Peter Fitzgerald. He's a professor of law emeritus. Uh, good afternoon, Peter. How are good you? Good afternoon, John. How are you? Fine. It's, it's great having you here. Uh, this is going to be a very interesting uh, talk. Um, I'll call it, uh, the label would be the CDC bans dog imports, hindering dog rescue efforts. And it's a fairly significant uh, action that CDC has taken. But I first, uh, Peter, what I want you to do, what I do with all my guests is to explain how you got here from there in terms of uh, getting involved with the Yankee Golden Retriever Rescue which has to do with this importing of dogs. Certainly. Well, I've been, I've been involved with Golden Retriever Rescue for 25 years or more with various groups. And uh, after I uh, relocated up here to, to Maine, I got involved with Yankee Golden Retriever Rescue, uh, which is, uh, covers the entire New England area, even though it's based outside of Boston, down in Hudson. Uh, Yankee, we, we sometimes call it YGRR in the world of acronyms that we all live in today, uh, was established back in, in 1985. It is a, a breed-specific rescue group, so we focus specifically on Goldens and what we call the Golden-Hearted, the, the mixes and things. And our mission is to provide comprehensive medical care, behavioral evaluations, and adoptive homes to homeless Goldens and the Golden-Hearted Dogs all across New England. And after working with them for a while, I was, I was lucky enough to be invited to join their board, and that's, that's where I am now. I am a member of the board. And my specific area of responsibility is to oversee our international operations, which we'll talk about. But our primary focus, of course, is, is dogs here in New England. And since we were established back in, in uh, 85, we've placed nearly 6,000 dogs all across New England and, of course, here in Maine. Well, go ahead. Now you're, you're a professor of law. Yep. Yep. Did I'm a retired professor of law. Uh, I was an international uh, trade and, and commercial specialist for many years. Uh, I was in practice uh, in-house with IBM for many years and then joined academia full-time uh, and uh, focused on international trade issues. But I also teach uh, or taught animal law and international animal law because I found that uh, my, my international trade folks really didn't know anything about animals uh. and the animal folks really didn't know anything <laughs> about international stuff. So I sort of put that together and, and even uh, authored one of the first uh, law school textbooks on the subject many years ago. You're, so you're the perfect bridge for these. Well, that was the whole idea was to try and bridge it uh, yeah. because it is really two different worlds of, of issues, but they do intersect. I mean, we have animals, obviously, that move all around the world 
We have animal products that move all around the world. And there are all sorts of issues about uh, the different ways animals and animal products are treated in each country and all sorts of issues about how you move those from one place to another. Of course, there's the public health aspects that uh, drive some of these laws. I suspect you had to get into that as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we, 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 we certainly deal with that. Um, but one of the, I guess one of the first questions that comes up all the time is, is why, why is your organization involved with international rescue at all? You know, why aren't you just focusing on, on dogs here at home? And that's a, that's a big story. That's probably good enough for uh, another whole program for you. But in short, uh, times, have, times have changed and the way we handle and deal with animals has changed. The Washington Post a few years ago pointed out, for example, that uh, we used to euthanize as many as 20 million dogs a year in the 1970s. And that's dropped to a few hundred thousand as of uh, 2017. I don't know what the figure is now, but there's been a drastic change in the number of dogs that are in shelters. And that has really affected uh, supply and demand all across the country. This is not something that is evenly spread. Uh, here in the Northeast, the Great Lakes, the Northwest, the demand for adoptable dogs often exceeds what's available locally. And conversely, down South, you have a lot of shelters and rescue groups that tend to have an oversupply of dogs in shelters or unwanted animals. And so that's where you could share your, and you hear, uh, even when I was practicing five, six years ago, uh, a lot of people went down South to get dogs from hurricanes and, and that sort Absolutely. of thing. And, yeah. or they would, or they were shipped up here. And that was a very, very um, uh, popular way of rescuing dogs from other parts of the country. Absolutely. Hurricane Katrina back in, when was that? 2005 was really sort of the watershed on that because you had all those dogs that were suddenly displaced down in the South. And uh, that was when everybody came together and said, well, well, let's do something about this. Let's help. And that was really the beginning of sort of an informal network where shelters and rescue groups, which up until then had tended to be pretty local, started to say, well, you know, I, I can talk to my counterparts elsewhere and we can work together and we can do something to, to help all these dogs cooperatively and find new ways to respond to crisis conditions and also just, you know, rehoming the animals that need, need help. And nowadays, looking at, you know, here we are in the 2020s, there are literally thousands of dogs from other states and countries that move all across the country uh, to, to find new homes and to deal with the balance. And that's, that's a good thing, you know, because it means that, uh, those that are maybe stressed because they've got too many dogs in their shelter or in their organization can find support from other areas where, uh, they don't have enough dogs to meet the demand and people want to adopt them and provide new homes, new forever homes so that it, it serves both areas, if you will. Uh, it's, it's a way of cooperatively dealing with the whole notion of rescue. And social media has played probably. Oh, huge. Critical, huge. critical. Yeah, you know, we've had the whole revolution in communications over that same period. And, and it, it obviously all, all plays together. Now, 
that's sort of the general picture of, of rescues and things moving. But when you're dealing with an organization like, like YGRR, where we are breed specific or focused in primarily on Goldens, uh, that becomes particularly uh, acute because you know, people come to us, they're, they're interested in the breed, they're interested in, in looking for a golden or a golden mix as opposed to a lab or some other dog. And, and if you look at the statistics for goldens, over the past 10 years or so, uh, the National Rescue Committee has, has pulled together statistics which say there has been a 60% decline in the number of goldens that wind up in shelters or in rescues, uh, which is a, a startling number. Which, which, how, how can you explain that? Well, it's it's actually a success. It means that the efforts that that lots of us in in rescue, but in other organizations as well, animal welfare organizations, have been educating the public about the various issues that you might find with uh, puppy mills or uh, sketchy uh, organizations that might be selling dogs that, that aren't properly cared for uh, and and uh, all of these other types of things, plus spay and neuter programs uh, and the associated issues with high volume retailers and the like, that message has gotten out there. And as a result, there are fewer Goldens that wind up in situations where they need to be given to rescue or where they are abandoned because they're not working out for their family or wherever they happen to be, changing the demand. So with fewer Goldens now being abandoned or given up, there and uh, no real change in the popularity of the breed, uh, it, it now is, is a real demand situation. You know, Goldens, Goldens themselves are an imported breed. They were developed in Scotland back in the 19th century, and they started to be imported here into the U.S. in the 1990s. And they still are an extremely popular breed. I think they're number two or number three in the U.S. consistently. Uh, and they are equally popular in many, many countries around the world, in Australia, the U.K., and the rest. They're in the top ten as well. And they've become status symbols in various other places as well. So there's a lot of uh, interest in the breed. There's a lot of demand for the breed, not so, only here, but, but elsewhere. So your demand in New England was uh, outstripping what you had available. Yep. And so you, I assume you sought resources from other parts of the United States, or did you not? Or did you go well, right to the international? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've been, you know, our, our mission, as I say, we've always been focused on, on here in New England. And uh, what happened was that as communications have changed, uh, demand has changed, and the rest, we started to hear of uh, the conditions of Goldens in other countries. You know, as I say, with, with the dogs being popular in Brazil and Australia, the UK, China, Turkey, and the rest... Uh, we started to realize that there was the opportunity to help these goldens, these wonderful dogs, which are in need elsewhere, and bring them here to, to this country as well. Um, and we started doing that back in 2015. We started working initially with uh, Adopt-A-Golden down in Atlanta, who had personal relationships 
with uh, counterpart rescues in Turkey, and they started bringing in dogs from Turkey. And we joined in with that, got support from the uh, National Rescue Committee, and uh, Turkey is now a, a major source for a lot of Goldens that are coming into this country from, from abroad. Um, it, and uh, it's, it's a, a lovely thing to see these dogs when they arrive and you realize they're Goldens. Yeah, they maybe came from some other geography, but you open up the crate, they get out, they look at you and say, can we go for a ride? Can we play? Love I mean, me? Hi, I'm a golden. And you go, yes, you are. <laughs> you can see it. So they haven't uh, changed their genetic personality just because they're from Turkey. That's right. Or China or wherever. Or wherever. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the breed, the breed holds true, if you will. But one of the things that, that is different is that the, the culture they come from is not what we're used to here in the United States. Dog culture, pet culture around the world varies greatly, uh, as one can imagine, just like countries vary greatly. And so the, the situations that you see are uh, quite startling for, if you're looking at them from a U.S. perspective. If you don't understand what that culture is, uh, it, can be, it can be quite stunning. Uh, in, our, in our particular organization, we've, as I said, we've placed about 6,000 dogs since we were founded. Uh, we've imported about 400 dogs from Turkey. We've imported about 100 or so from China and a handful from you know, other places like Egypt and Russia, but, but China and, and, and Turkey primarily. And it's a world of difference from what you see here, let me tell you. Well, the, the difference must include you being in the United States have to follow certain rules and regulations and you have of your course. own, you have your own protocols, your own procedures and your own expectations. Of course. So now you go over to Turkey and they have their own rules, regulations, procedures, expectations. So how do you, how do you uh, reconcile the differences such that you can cooperate and things go smoothly? Well, that, that gets into some, some technical stuff, if you will. It gets into the, the laws and regulations that, uh, that we have here in the United States and also the laws or the regulations that you have uh, in, in the foreign country. And those also are going to be influenced by the different cultures that, that you see. For example, we're very used to uh, seeing our pets here in families, on the streets, and uh, around. I mean, everybody, even if you don't have a pet, you know people that have pets and the rest. In China, for example, uh, when the communist revolution came along in 1949, pets were banned. They were prohibited. You could have you know, dogs working in the field. You could have dogs as guard dogs. But pets, that, that whole notion was viewed as some sort of Western bourgeois affectation. And, and they were actually outlawed. So what you now have, and that lasted until recent times, so that meant that there were entire generations of Chinese folks who grew up never visualizing a pet, never knowing someone had one out there, never really realizing what, what that was all about. And that's reflected in the Chinese laws and regulations as well. Um, the the no-dog policy, the formal no-dog policy, 
began to change when the Chinese economy changed with the, the Chinese boom and the rest. Uh, and it got so popular uh, to have a dog uh, because you had disposable income. You had uh, a new urban population. And China is now 55% urban. Uh, that, uh, that people started to adopt dogs and have dogs and pets. Some even say, some even point to the, uh, the old Chinese uh, one-child policy, which was in effect from 79 to 2015, as saying, well, that's the reason why people are getting pets, because you get these young professionals, they're getting income and the rest, they're moving out in the city, and they say, I want some company. So you get a pet. And that prompted the creation of new regulations that went from no pets, no dogs, to a one-pet policy. But there were all sorts of funny rules that went along with that. For example, in Beijing, the police outlawed large dogs. If your dog was taller than uh, about 14 inches, you couldn't have it. Any big dog was viewed as prima facie vicious and not worth keeping. And if you violated the rules, uh, there were strict, strict penalties. They also put in place all sorts of owner responsibility things, which at first glance aren't so surprising to us. Leash laws, got to keep your dog on a leash, can only take it out into public on certain hours. Oh, well, what hours? 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. was prohibited. So, you know, you couldn't take it. Oh, most people live in tall apartment buildings, but you can't bring the dog in the elevator. Uh, you know, all these other types of things. Oh, wow. it has to be, you know, vaccinated and registered. And if it doesn't meet the criteria, it's the wrong breed, it's too tall, it makes noise and your neighbors complain, the police will come by and confiscate the dog. They also have very, they have a history of, of very strict regulation. So, Dogs that are not registered or that violate the laws are confiscated and euthanized. And sometimes they're killed on the spot. So it can be quite dramatic. There are annual crackdowns where uh, your neighbors are encouraged to phone in and say, oh, well, such and such over here has a dog that's not right, not prohibited, you know, can't have it. And there are even bounties. You know, if police go out and gather up 10 dogs, they get paid more than if they, they didn't. Where does this come from? Where does this culture come from? Well, part of it is the prohibition on having pets and not knowing how to accommodate pets in a new urban environment. But part of it also comes from a fear of rabies. Rabies is absolutely endemic uh, in China. And they have uh, uh, had three or four waves of rabies epidemic since 1949. The most recent one began in 96 and quickly grew. And the typical response of the government is to do a massive dog cull. So for example, in 2006, Yunnan province culled 50,000 dogs because they had three human deaths from rabies. Uh, 37,000 dogs were killed in another uh, cull. Uh, and as recently as 2018, uh, one city killed 5,000 dogs. So the notion of killing dogs alongside the notion of having pets lives side by side. And it's all embodied in their laws and regulations. 
the calling um, early on before dogs could be used as, uh, could be used as pets. Were they, because another part of my question is before dogs could be pets, where were the dogs? Were, are, were they free roaming in the streets? Well, uh, yes and no. Dogs were prohibited. Couldn't have them. If you're working on the farm, fine. But if they're out on the streets, they're subject to being captured and killed. So it was a so concept. So you had both. Uh, so so dogs kept, the, kept, pop, kept reproducing enough to stay ahead of the cops, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Dogs <laughs> are doing what dogs were doing, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, you do have that issue. In fact, uh, there's a big, or there was a big problem with Tibetan mastiffs, because people would get these dogs. They're big dogs, so they're prohibited under the city regulations. And people would say, "Well, what do we do? Well, we'll go back to the Tibetan temples and dump them off." And of course, under their principles, uh, you're not going to euthanize an animal. So they try and feed them, and you actually wind up with huge colonies of basically feral Tibetan mastiffs, which threaten the local villagers and the rest. So it becomes a, a real a real issue for for that Chinese government to uh, to deal with, um, and and it's it's still being grappled with in, in, in a great deal of difficulty. So what you have is this social phenomenon where some element of the population, which didn't grow up with animals or pets, says you don't supposed to have these things. And you got others who say, but we want them for a variety of reasons. And uh, that creates sort of, sort of a tension. One of the interesting areas where that tension shows up is in the dog meat trade. Uh, as we know here, uh, there are folks in parts of China and the, some other Asian countries that view dogs as a source of food. It's actually very small. I think it's less than 10% of the population. But what we perhaps don't appreciate is that there are no dog meat farms to be a source for this food, this, this, this meat trade. So where does it come from? Well, it comes from people's pets being stolen comes from the, the street dogs being stolen. Uh, it takes a lot of time, money, and effort to raise an animal for food. It takes only seconds to steal one. So there's a really rampant dog theft problem as well. Oh, how so how did we, so how do how do YGRR tap into we'll say China and, and Turkey's your main how did you guys tap into um, the specific golden retrievers in, in that situation, uh, to, to save them basically. And, and were, and was China or Turkey receptive to that? Did they, do they mind? Did they mind initially you guys come in and say, can we take your goldens? Yeah. It sounds sort of like Western imperialism, doesn't it? <laughs> I didn't say actually, that. <laughs> yeah. Actually there's, there's a, uh, uh, a growing animal welfare movement within all these countries. Uh, in China, going back to the dog meat example, for in, in China, when trucks go down the highway and they've got all these dogs crammed in there, like we, we might see for chickens or something, going off to the to slaughter, there's actually uh, a social movement. People see that on the highway. They get on their phones. They get on social media. They stop the trucks. They save the dogs. They pull them off and they rescue them. 
So there are those types of rescues. There are also, you know, maybe 10,000 rescue organizations uh, in, in the country as well, which could be very small. They could just be a couple of people saying, I'm going to take care of the, the dogs in my neighborhood, or they could be well-organized as we're starting to see more and more as this goes on. So what happens is um, we have a number of folks that are like our counterparts, and they're focused in on local rescue operations. But adoption is not something that has been culturally uh, widely used or accepted in China. Um, it's uh, other countries are a little bit different, but in 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 China, you have the groups trying to do their best to educate the public about adoption and say yes, there's there's good reason to take these dogs uh, and and it helps them and the rest. But you still have them dealing with the local environment, which says uh, big dogs bad, small dogs okay. Uh, you know all the other regulations that go in place. You have the cultural attitude that says, well, it's kind of like a toy. I, I, and I get tired of the dog or the neighbor complains. I put it back out on the street. So there's a, a wide range of organizations. What we do, again, much like the, uh, the folks uh, that started off in Turkey, is we've developed relationships with counterpart organizations which are reputable, which follow the rules uh, related to their legal requirements, that make sure that the dogs are healthy. Uh, they, they tend to those that are injured or sick and the like and are trying to place them locally, but they also look to Europe. They look to Canada. They look to the United States as another source for uh, placing their dogs. Um, if I can, I want to contrast that a little bit. I know I want to get to the specifics. In Turkey, you've got a, a similar and not a similar... In Turkey, you've got a different culture. In Turkey, street dogs have been part of the culture for eons. And it's accepted. Dogs are everywhere. There's a, there's a great little uh, uh, movie that came out, a documentary last year called Stray, which talks about the, the street dogs in Istanbul and the rest and illustrates, illustrates their life. So dogs are accepted in the street and allowed to live there and in fact are now viewed as sentient beings and you're not supposed to do anything bad to them. In fact, what they do instead is they have uh, sort of the equivalent of what we're familiar with with cats, where there's a catch, neuter, release program, but for dogs. And they're tagged and they're you know, put out there and neutered. Uh, and the local communities will come along and maybe feed and take care of the dogs as well. They may not take them into their home because traditionally some Animals are viewed as, as unclean, but they'll take care of them. But at the same time, as we saw in China, there's a history of saying, well, when you get too many, what do you do with them? Oh, you take them to the forest, you dump them off, they're animals, you figure out you know, that they're going to live fine because after all, they're animals. Not so much. So as, as in China, in Turkey, there are animal welfare movements. There are rescues. There are folks that come in and say, okay, let's look at how we take care of these animals. Particularly with regard to golden retrievers, goldens uh, were a status symbol in Turkey. They were very popular along with a, a number of other breeds, labs, and the like. 
But then you had the Turkish economic collapse, fashions changed, and the people that had these these goldens, which were also coming out of local puppy mill operations to feed the to to supply the dogs that the populace wanted, they said, "Well, what do we do with dogs when we no longer want them? We turn them out on the streets." So there are literally thousands of dogs there that are just great goldens. In fact, I've adopted one myself. He's at my feet right now who is just the sweetest possible animal you can imagine. So back in 2015, what got us really going on this was adopt a golden in Atlanta, had a personal relationship. You get to know who your counterpart is. You get to see whether or not you're going to trust them as being reliable and appropriate. And working with your counterparts, you both support their operation for placing and uh, caring for the dogs in country, but also there's some of them which they say, okay, let's maybe send out to the U.S., Europe, or elsewhere. Now, we'll talk about yeah. the process of that in a minute. First, yeah. I want to uh, identify the station. This is WERU 89.9, Blue Hill, Maine. And uh, this is Let's Talk Animals from Artivarks to Zebras. Dr. John Hunt, your host. We're talking with Peter Fitzgerald, a lawyer of international law that specializes or is a special interest in animals. And he is a board member of the Yankee Golden Retriever Rescue. And we're talking about importing dogs from other countries. And the question I want to put to you, Peter, is uh, one thing I read a number of times is your claim that we do not buy dogs, but yet it costs 2,500 bucks to get the dog over to the United States. Can you explain that process? before we get into the CDC that wants to stop that process. Sure, sure. Uh, Moving dogs from one country to another is controversial and it is expensive, naturally. One of the the issues that comes up is that critics sometimes say that what you're doing when you import a dog from another country is you're creating a market. You're supporting foreign puppy mills or dog mills. You're creating an opportunity for folks to uh, exploit the animals. And, uh, and then you have the, the other issue we need to talk about, which is the, the health risks. These are legitimate concerns. They're absolutely legitimate and they need to be addressed, but there are lots of, uh, there are a whole host of, of possible responses uh, to that. Uh, firstly, I think you need to distinguish between legitimate, genuine rescue efforts and those which are just exploiting animals in need. There are irresponsible parties everywhere. There are fake shelters and bad groups uh, in this country, as well as there are abroad. And it's important that uh, for us and other responsible animal welfare organizations that we work with legitimate parties who are not pursuing this as a for-profit business trying to take advantage of, say, the lack of regulation of, of local breeders. Um, one of the things that has concerned the rescue community and groups like the CDC are the scams that occur, where you have unscrupulous parties who say that they're really providing rescue services, and what they're actually doing is trafficking and selling dogs at exorbitant prices Uh, which is supposed to be uh, viewed as rescues. Uh, The International Pet and Animal Transport Association, IPATA, 
uh, Better Business Bureau, PetScams.com, CDC, lots of others. We'll have lots of posts about this to say, you know, regularly watch for internet in particular, online sales and pet scams. Um, we've got problems like that here in the U.S. as, as well. But for us and other responsible organizations, we do not pay for the dogs we acquire abroad. We don't go in and say, I'm going to buy that puppy. I'm going to buy that dog. Precisely out of the concern that that would be perpetuating this sort of puppy mill operation or exploitation from the commercial market. What we do pay for, what we do reimburse, are the cost of veterinary care, boarding and feeding while we're waiting to get all the paperwork and everything done, the transport costs to the, to the U.S. and the like. Uh, but we, we scrupulously comply with all the regulatory requirements when we're doing so, and we make sure that we're not creating that financial uh, incentive, which is going to feed a dog meat trade at business or something like that. Um, the second thing is, obviously, we are going to be scrupulously aware of both the foreign government and the U.S. government controls on importing dogs that pertain to health risks. Obviously, you want to be sure that uh, that you're you're dealing with healthy dogs. Uh, on the exporting side, the countries actually don't want to have a reputation for sending out sick animals, so they're concerned about this too. They don't want to see their you know Chinese reputation or Turkish reputation saying, "Oh, all they're doing is sending us these these sick animals that they can't use themselves." Uh, so they have lots of requirements on health checks things that have to happen at the local in-country uh, rescue organization, whether the dogs are being exported or not, and then the particular checks that go in to the export process. On the importing side, the U.S. government side, uh, there are lots of other uh, requirements. One of the things that folks often don't realize is that there are multiple agencies involved in any sort of dog import. You've got the U.S. Department of Agricultural Animal Plant Health uh, Services organizations. You've got the Centers for Disease Control. You've got the customers, cust excuse me, Customs and Border Protection folks. And all of these folks have a piece of the process coming in. And like any government interagency process, yeah, the agencies don't always work all that well together. They have problems accessing their same databases, getting the information back and forth. So there, there are all sorts of issues that can come up there. But the way, it's, the way it works for a rescue is that uh, we have to get an import permit from the USDA APHIS operation, the, the folks that check for the health of animals and, and plants as they come into the country. And if you were traveling as an individual citizen and just saying, I'm bringing in my own dog, I, I'm not doing this for uh, adoption or uh, resale or transfer to somebody else, that doesn't apply to you, but it does apply to us as a rescue. So the rescue organizations are actually part of the 6% of imports, which have to get special permits. Everybody else is exempt. There's a bill pending in Congress right now, the Healthy, uh, the Healthy uh, Dog Importation Act, 
which wants to change that and say that we should have one set of rules for all dog imports coming into the country. And we support that. The American Kennel Club, uh, Club support, lots of organizations support that. Why? Sorry? Why? Because what we're doing is trying to maintain that the dog is as healthy as possible and we're following the strictest possible rules. If 94% of the dogs that come into the country don't have to follow those rules, then they're opening up the health risks. They're not doing the same thing. Plus, it's confusing to have multiple sets of rules and, you know, do you fit this? Do you fit that? One set of rules, one agency to deal with the public would be great. So, you know, that's a good thing to do. But under that process, we have to do lots of things. For example, every golden retriever that we bring into the country is individually examined and certified by local vets. And they have to be found to be in good health. They have to be vaccinated for rabies, distemper, hepatitis, lepto, parvovirus, parainfluenza, and depending where you're coming from, like China, screw worm. And organizations like us say, well, that's fine. That's what the government requires, but we want you to do more. We want you to look at other diseases that might be out there, even though the government doesn't ask for it, like brucellosis or leishmaniasis. So, excuse me. So we have all these health checks that are going on and that has to be certified in a permit. And then that package of documents comes with the dog to the United States. When they arrive, the customs and border folks look at that, make sure that the dog's microchip number matches the documents, that the documents talk about everything being done correctly so that the uh, USDA is, is happy and the CDC is informed. So in essence, the dog comes in with what's called a pet passport. They actually have a whole package of documentation which documents the screening process they went through before they arrived to the United States, which actually can take several months to put together. But you, as a private party, could go somewhere overseas uh, or buy a dog on the internet and it's yours and say, have it shipped to you. And the only thing that the U.S. law says you need is a rabies certificate and maybe a screwworm certificate. And that's it. And the Humane Society figures that there are roughly more than 200,000 pet dogs purchased that way every year versus the, the ones that we bring in. So obviously, we support bringing in healthy animals. We support all the testing and uh, more could probably be done to minimize or contain disease, such as making sure all dogs go through this process. But uh, one of the things that's important to understand is that rescues are already held to the highest standards imposed by the U.S. government. And extending those standards to all imports can only be a good thing. So, you know, anybody that's listening to this uh, you know, get a hold of your representative in Congress and tell them to go out and co-sponsor or support the Healthy Dog Importation Act, which was introduced by the co-chairs of the House Veterinary Congress. Uh, and that's Representatives Kurt Schrader from Oregon and Dusty Johnson from South Dakota, because, you know, this is an important bill. And it will help make safer dogs and uh, a safer public. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, the CDC, whose job is to protect the public, uh, recently put a ban on all imports of dogs 
uh, based on the the reasoning is that they're trying to protect the public from the canine uh, variant of the rabies. We haven't had a canine rabies variant in, in the United States for 20 years. Uh, yep. our, our rabies in the United States, we do have rabies in the United States, but it's wildlife. Yep. And uh, CDC suddenly, as of, I think, what, June 16th or something, said, okay, uh, we had a couple dogs from Egypt come in and they had fraudulent rabies vaccines and they came down with the, the canine rabies variant. So we're not importing anybody. So what's going on? What do you, what's your stand on that? Because there's certain things that weren't, weren't done that you felt in terms of yeah. procedure that wasn't fair. Well, our view at YGRR and, and across the animal welfare and uh, rescue communities is to 100% support the objective. You don't want to import a dog that has rabies into the United States, if at all possible. You want to stop that and have an appropriate control system. The control system that the CDC has relies upon these rabies certificates that are issued by foreign vets, foreign parties. And the certificate says, yeah, the dog's been vaccinated. And then it comes in and they match up the timing and all the rest of that uh, when the dog arrives. The problem is that the CDC, who wants a zero tolerance for dogs coming in that are infected, understandably, and we agree, uh, has found four dogs since 2015, which came in, which had, in fact, infections. Uh, and th three of the dogs were from Egypt, and one just the last month came in from Azerbaijan. In all of those cases, the dogs had rabies certificates, but the certificates were, were inadequate or falsified. And that, that occurred in the exporting country. It wasn't the problem of the importer. So what the CDC has is a process problem. They say, I need a rabies certificate to make sure the dog is safe, but I can't trust the certificates I'm getting. In addition to the four dogs that came in, they've also said this past year, they found 450 cases of other paperwork problems without the dog being infected. So they've got an issue that's a legitimate issue that says, hmm, I got to depend upon this paperwork and I can't trust it anymore. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to stop all the imports from countries where rabies is endemic. So they've put in place a ban on imports from 113 countries, 57% of the countries around the world because they've seen four dogs in the last six years and 450 paperwork cases in the past year. During those same six years, there were 300, by the CDC's own statistics, there were at least 360,000 other dog imports from these countries where there was no problem. So they had four and some paperwork, less than 1% of the total versus the 360,000. So they've now stopped imports by travelers, rescues, breeders, short-term, uh, you know. Tourists. I mean, tourists. If, I, if, I went, yeah. if I went with the dog and came back, right. you can't you, do that. You can't do it. You can't do it. Uh, so the notion is, gee, that seems like an awfully drastic action. Uh, is it an overreaction? We think it is. Why? Because there are less drastic ways that are just as effective in stopping the infected dog from arriving. What are they? 
Well, since the 1990s, the World uh, Animal Health Organization, the organization is now called the OIE, has, uh, and actually before that, has had used antibody testing, which is done after the animal is vaccinated. So you have a vaccination, you wait a period of time, you do a test, and then you see, oh, were the antibodies that the vaccination was supposed to generate actually there? And if they were, you can feel confident that the dog, one, was vaccinated, and two, presents a low risk of disease. It's not 100% like we've seen with COVID, but it's about 95, 96% effective. Who, who does the test? That's a great question. If you're worried about fake paperwork, you want somebody trustworthy doing the test and doing the paperwork. So what you do is you have a government-approved testing facility. The World Animal uh, Health Organization, the OIE, recommends precisely that. Uh, create a list of approved labs, have them do the test, have that antibody test accompany the paperwork. Hawaii has been doing this for you know countless years. They've been doing, well, Hawaii's had quarantines and control since 1912 and never had a case of rabies. It is the only state in the United States which is free for rabies. And since uh, 1997, they've been using this antibody test as a check on the rabies vaccination and not had a single case. The European Union has the same system, antibody testing following vaccination. It's been in place since uh, the early 2000s. The United Kingdom has the same process. And in fact, in all of those places, the dogs that have come in have been free from rabies. So it has protected these other places just the way we want to protect the United States. So our thought is that's the way to go. Don't rely just upon a piece of paper that says there was a rabies certificate. Get the scientific validation of having the antibody test. And oh, by the way, that's the way everybody's supposed to have been doing it. We just have a system which is old-fashioned. It doesn't use the test. Now, in addition to imposing the ban, the CDC has said, well, you know, there are a couple of categories of folks that we're going to still let come into the country if they can show that they've got a good dog, if they've a dog that's free from rabies. And they have created a very limited CDC dog import process. This is an entirely new thing, entirely new bureaucracy, separate from this other one that the USDA has. And as part of their process, they say, get the antibody test. So the CDC itself simultaneously is prohibiting imports, but recognizing the value of the test. The problem is they're, they're saying this is a very limited test. It cannot be used by a traveler. It cannot be used by, actually uh, the permit is, is limited. Can't be used by traveler, can't be used by a tourist, can't be used by those bringing in dogs for rescue uh, or transfer. It can only be used by U.S. government employees under change of station orders or U.S. citizens or residents permanently relocating back to this country uh, and a couple of other categories, research and the rest. Uh, in addition, 
they say, and if you're going to use this permit, you can only ask for it once, can't ask for it twice. And in the permit we're going to give you, you can't bring in more than three dogs ever. So, uh, and oh, by the way, the only airport you can use is JFK International in New York. So they've really cranked this thing down. And so our response is, we, we, we like this antibody test. It's good. It's the way to go. It's the way the rest of the world goes. And it's been proven to be effective. But let's get rid of these silly restrictions. Open it up to the travelers. Open it up to rescues. Open it up to breeders and folks coming in for dog shows and the rest. Uh, because it's been shown to work. And oh, by the way, Hawaii, they don't have any restrictions. And it's worked for them, thousands of dogs, since 1997. And oh, by the way, Hawaii can't do that system anymore because the federal government has come in with this one, which obliterates it. So our, our response is, use the Hawaii model, open it up, go ahead and do this. Uh, and we hope that they'll go in that direction. I think, personally, I think one of the reasons there's a lot of restrictions on this is that the CDC doesn't have a whole lot of manpower to devote to it. It's a personnel issue. Uh, person power. Uh, and they're saying, well, if we if we make sure there are only a few that can come in, we're not going to be swamped with all these applications. Well, and they, it means they don't have to fight with the USDA over who's in charge of the permit process. Exactly. Yeah. Also, they made, as I understand it, they, they just uh, declared this import ban and with no public uh, discussion or anything before that. And that's not typical, is it? No, that's not typical. The, uh, the, the CDC, obviously, and for good reason, has the authority to do things very quickly, very suddenly. But ordinarily, when you come out with new rules like this, the federal government says we put this in the federal register. Uh, we have a comment period where the various stakeholders and interested parties could come in and say, have you thought about this? Is this better? What if we do that? And so what's happening now is that they put these rules in effect, fully effective on July 14th, but they're now getting feedback, in essence, the comments that they should have considered up front that says, oh, you did it wrong. There's a better way to do it uh, and accommodate you know, the thousands of, of good guys, good legitimate imports that are out there. Uh, and they've got to figure out how to accommodate that. So one of the things that, uh, that we've done at YGRR is we have a press release that we've put out, which kind of summarizes the issue and even has a suggested message that members of the public and our members of YGRR can send to their representatives and senators asking that this existing process that they just created, this new import permit, be opened up get rid of the restrictions, do exactly what CD says we need to do, get the antibody test, but make it more widely available for those who are legitimate and responsible and willing to follow all the steps that protect both human health and animal health. Because from our perspective, I guess one of the, one of the things we'd say is as a rescue organization, you know, if we don't do this, those dogs overseas are going to be living under brutal circumstances and euthanized. They're going to be killed, sometimes brutally. And from our perspective, compassion, uh, the value of life, doesn't change because of lines on a map. How does the 
the the new law that's in Congress waiting to be passed, the the import law. How does that tie into all this? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. The Healthy Dog Importation Act, it's uh, House Resolution 4239, was actually introduced in the last Congress. And with everything going on, it didn't go anywhere. It was just reintroduced last month in this Congress. But now that we have this import ban in place, it shows that there really is a need to take all the rules on dog imports and put them in one place and put them under one agency. And we've got an agency that's been out there doing this for years, managing the process, dealing with the public, and that's the USDA. And so what this bill would do, this act would do, is expand their authority so that it applies, their rules and everything apply to all dog imports. And they could easily pick up the antibody requirement and add that to the other rules that they, in fact, administer. Right now, only 6% of imports go through this process, expanded to 100%. So if you consolidated everything into the USDA and all the rules, uh, CDC is still lurking about with their uh, concern for public safety. So sure. how would how would the CDC work with the Absolutely. The SDA? I mean, or would the Absolutely. CDC have power over the SDA? I mean, how would that? Well, they wouldn't, this is a cooperative relationship among co-equal branches of government and agencies. But That's CDC, what you say. <laughs> CDC already works with the Customs Bureau, already works with USDA, and vice versa. So they're, they're all going back and forth. One of the additional things that the, uh, the bill does is it would provide more funding and uh, uh, resources so that they all work from the same system, so that they can all access the same information. They become aware of the various pending approvals and what's what's been authorized both in advance and at the airport when the shipment and the dog arrives. So it really harmonizes the system. And a lot of the CDC's concerns and the rest of this would still be addressed, but they'd just be working behind the scenes and the public face, if you will, would be the USDA. They would be the ones administering the import. So without um, meetings beforehand, this import ban just came down. How are you going to recommend the changes besides having the public write letters? But how are you guys going to? Do you have a lobby group or? We are. We've contacted uh, our representatives in Congress. We're working with other rescues and uh, animal welfare organizations on both the national and local level. And all of us are approaching the, the uh, political elements of, of the government and saying that there is a smarter and better way to get to this objective, which we all support, which is to maintain public health and healthy dogs coming into the country. And uh, so we're going to continue that process. And as I say, if people are listening, you know, go to the website, look at the press release, get the text of the message, send that to your congressman, send that to your senator and send it to the CDC because more public support for this it, it can only help. Wow. That's uh, and any other message you have before, because we, we have run out of time, believe it or not, this has been a fantastic hour. <laughs> Adopt uh, a golden. Pardon me? Adopt, Adopt a golden. A <laughs> yes. 
That was short. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm biased, but they are great dogs. Yes, I had and a golden I've myself. Three international adoptions myself. So they you, they are wonderful dogs. Are you looking well with once the import is this import thing is taken care of, are you looking at other countries or is Turkey are Turkey and China your main sources it, right now? It really comes from personal relationships when we find a reliable, trustworthy partner overseas. Uh, quite frankly, our primary focus remains on the domestic dogs. You know, this this is less than 10% of what we normally handle uh, over the past few years. And, and and I should also emphasize, we never turn away a domestic golden retriever in need. This is always a supplement and an adjunct. But if we can find uh, dogs overseas in need, if we have the resources and the ability to deal with them and adopters willing to take them in, we're happy to do that. I'm glad you said that, that you don't turn away anybody uh, in the United States. Uh, Peter Fitzgerald of the uh, Yankee Golden Retriever Rescue. Thank you so much. I'm going to have you back. Um, not sure when, but because I think you have a lot to, to uh, share with us. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Art vs. Zebras. Remember, remember, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug.